Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. My name is Gene. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. It's awesome to be in the house on this Memorial Day weekend where we remember those that have sacrificed all for our freedoms and uh, we're incredibly grateful for that this morning. I'm also really grateful that as we gather together in, the, in this place this morning, it's a, it's a building at the corner of 5th and Madison in downtown Goshen, a place that we call home. It's, um, it's a privilege, really, to be here and, um, and whenever we gather like this, there's this moment that I often sense that we all can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit here among us. I felt that this morning, and I believe you did too. It can be a moment where we uh, sit up and we perk our ears up. We may not hear anything audibly, but there's some stuff. There are some things that are being said in our hearts. And I hope as we continue through this message time and uh, additional worship at the end, that you will lean in and listen for that voice in your spirit. In my home growing up, there were all kinds of reasons for us to go down to the basement. Uh, the extra fridge was down there. The uh, canning kitchen was, my mom had a canning kitchen downstairs. Every year she did a lot of canning. There was a canning storage room downstairs. My brother and I's ping pong table was down there. The laundry was down there. There was a shower down there. There was also this alcove in the wall by the stairs that was just deep enough for a young boy's body to slip into and hide there for all sorts of nefarious reasons. That became the place where we would hide when mom or one of us boys would uh, innocently enough go to the basement to get a can of uh, green beans or a gallon of milk out of the fridge or to take a shower. That's where we'd hide. And at just the right time, whoever was hiding would shoot out of that alcove and yell and watch with delight as the poor victim was scared like crazy and the adrenaline rush they got in that moment would just shoot them up the stairs to safety. This, was, uh, this wasn't just a one-time occurrence. You know, if, if you're a little boy and something works well, you kind of want to repeat it a few times to see if you can keep doing this, right? Well, it happened over and over and over to the point where uh, this was not a, you know, it was an alcove. There was a shadow there. And it didn't matter if there was a body in there or not. The shadow existed. And so you didn't walk past there anymore. It was always a dead run for the stairs, not knowing if there was something back there, really, or if it was just a shadow. Because the fear trigger, our fear triggers were switched. 
and the shadow was enough to make us scream and run. Have you experienced that sort of thing? Where the shadow scared you? Where that gave you fear? I hired a coach not so long ago. Someone that sits with me and asks me hard and sometimes uncomfortable questions. I respond to his questions and then to further raise my fear levels sometimes, he roots around in those responses to clarify what I really meant as I responded to his questions. It's been incredibly helpful. Actually, it's probably been one of the most, it's probably been one of the best things that I have done in recent memory for my mental health. Because you know, when you think you've got it going on, like you know, you're old enough to uh, kind of have lived through a bunch of things, and you think, well, I am, uh, I'm kind of all right. And then you sit with someone, and they ask you all these questions, and they get into the inner alcoves of your mind and dig up things and ask questions that you thought were resolved a long time ago. It can be very scary. It can be very scary to see how much work is left to do. It's also very encouraging to see how far you've come. It's very encouraging when you see the past and you see and identify the truth about the shadows and the fears that have already been revealed. So what I believe is true about all of us is that we want to remove fear from our lives, don't we? Like we don't want to be scared about things. We don't want to have fear in our lives because fear can serve its purpose in certain circumstances. You know, if your life is threatened, there's this reptilian, a reptile piece of your brain up here that triggers and you will respond because you felt fear. That's one thing. That's not what I'm talking about. We want to remove fear that paralyzes us. We want to remove fear from our lives that says, don't go there because what if they don't like you? Don't talk to them because they might have a different perspective and you certainly don't want to get into a challenging conversation. Fear keeps you from doing some of the best work in your life. We want to remove fear from our lives. And if we follow Jesus, we have faith in God. And that faith, we think, ought to supersede any fear we grapple with. We desire a fearless faith. We would say we want to be healthy and whole, mind, body, spirit. We want to mock the shadows and shine bright lights into those dark alcoves of our mind and heart. But you know what? Many of us aren't sure how to move forward because at our core, at our core, we're afraid of what we might discover. At our core, we're still asking questions like, am I really worth getting better? Is getting better something that I deserve? Do I really want, here's a big one, do I really want to part ways with fear? Do I? Do I want to part ways with fear? I mean, I've become very comfortable with fear. If fear is gone, 
Imagine that. If fear is gone, and if it's replaced by trust, well then, that would mean that I would have to tear down those walls I've put up, those protective walls of my heart and mind. I wonder if I could do that. I think many of us are actually afraid about that. So fearless faith, how do we get it? How do we have faith in a God that is so strong, so healthy, so confident in the source of that faith that we live fearlessly? We have to get real. We have to get real about a few things. First of all, to exist as a son or daughter, which is you are either a son or you are either a daughter, we needed both a mother and a father, both a male and a female. And in order for the egg and sperm to connect, there had to be a physical connection. The problem sometimes is love may or may not have been part of that sexual act. But conception followed, and nine months later, there you are. You are a son or a daughter born into this world. The circumstances related to the conception and the actions of your mother and father, father thereafter may determine a few things. They may, that may determine how you view yourself. How do you see yourself? It may determine how you experience love. It may determine if you trust or mistrust people, especially in how you relate to authority figures in your life. If fear has robbed you of peace, of joy, and of love, if punishment, judgment, and condemnation has been the language of your self-talk, then maybe you have a false perception of love. And fear has blinded you Here's what I really want you to hear. Fear has blinded you. It has served to keep you from seeing your heavenly father's unconditional love. Shame and separation is what we feel when this happens. When we have a false perception of love. Because our blindness distorts what we think we know about the intent and nature of our Heavenly Father. Love and fear are two of the most powerful motivators of human behavior. If you've ever thought about falling in love, and you know the apprehension around, yeah, but who? I vaguely remember that thought of kind of thinking. After 35 years, it sort of slips back in, you know, the recesses of my mind. But it's no small thing to say, who would love me and who could I love for the rest of my life? Like, that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. But when we're, we're scared to fall in love, and then we fall in love, and the fear dissipates. Real, true love casts out fear. In John chapter 
First uh, John chapter four, verse 18. These words are written for us for today. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. You and I have heard this many times if we've been in church. We've heard this scripture. I'd like to dissect it a little bit this morning. Because if it is true that God, being perfect in love, cannot fear, can he who knows all things to come fear a loss in the future? Have you ever thought about that before? It's kind of mind-bending. Can he who knows all things to come Fear a loss in the future. If God is love and there is no fear in love, should you fear his punishment? Proverbs 1.7 is another verse that we are very familiar with. It reads like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. See, at face value, we look at that and say, we read that as, the scare of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Me being scared of God is like right because that is the beginning of knowledge. But the ancient Hebrew writer would have understood the fear of God in this context more like we would understand the word awe. Awe. To be in awe of your father is really a beautiful thing. But nearly all of us fear a God who we have tried to adequately serve and please. Isn't that true? Like, we have tried so hard to do the right thing. We've tried so hard not to screw it up. Because we fear a God whose anger might just be exacted on us. We're afraid of not measuring up to his standards, never being good enough. And so we tend to keep him distant and unapproachable because that is how we see him. We see him as distant and unapproachable. This lie of not measuring up will keep us either consciously or subconsciously in a state of fear and anxiety. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way. Because sometimes we just live our lives and we are just anxious people. Sometimes we live our lives and we're just fearful people. This is just how we are. I'm telling you, you've believed a lie from the pit. If that is the way that you think about yourself this morning, anxiety and fear are part of the natural human response to circumstances, but we don't have to live there. Maybe you fear God because you've made him in your own image. Well, I'm fearful and I'm filled with anxiety and so I'm sure God must be that way. Maybe you see him as an earthly father with all his flaws. Do you think, do you think your heavenly father is like the worst of human fathers, given to fits of rage? Is your heavenly father impulsive and vindictive? Does God need anger management classes? Do you think your heavenly father wrings his hands with worry about your failures and your mistakes? If so, you've made God into your own image. 
you've given him a small heart and one that would love his children even less than the way that you would love your children. As followers of Jesus, we are called to love as he is loved, to live in forgiveness and grace, and yet lurking in the back of our minds, many of us may have memories of having been taught that Jesus came to save us from the wrath of the Father. Maybe you, like I, spent a lot of years of my life believing that God was just waiting for the next move that I made to be off-center from his will and ready to bring the hammer down hard on my life. Maybe that's been your perspective. But what kind of child would draw near to a father from whose wrath they need to be saved? I mean, after all, Jesus said, he and the father were one. If you have seen the father, you have seen me. So how is it that he would need to save us from himself? Again, this kind of small, pitiful love is not good news. It is a lie from the pit. It is a lie from the pit of shame and judgment. This lie will keep you in fear of a God that would crush you. You guys, we have to tear down that sort of an idol. That idol that we've made of an earthly father and let the love of our heavenly father cast out all fear. This morning, if you are unsure that you could be loved by such a great unconditional love, then I would invite you to ask God, your heavenly father, if he could love you this way. When you receive his love, you'll be able to love yourself and you'll be able to love others. There's a very, very familiar story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's not going to be up on the screen this morning because I want you to hear the story and I hope you hear it with fresh eyes and ears. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus was with the unsavory people and the Pharisees and the religious people, all kind of this amalgamation of people. Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, look at how this man associates with these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. So Jesus tells them a few stories. And in verse 11, he says, once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to the father and said, father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your, the estate that belongs to me? I don't, I don't know how this son came to his father, but all indications are he didn't come with a lot of humility and grace. I mean, if he comes to his father in that era, in that ancient culture, 
What he was saying was, hey, Dad, you're not dead yet, but I wish you were because I need, I need what you've got. I need what you've got. So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. So in, in the Greek, we would see this as uh, he gave them his life. So as he distributes their inheritance, he gives them their life, his life. And actually, he financed his younger son's life lived away from him. He paid for his son to journey away from him. And he did so without condemnation. His son goes off to a faraway place. He wanted to see the world, and so he left that where his father and went, and he journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given to a binge, in a binge of extravagant and a reckless living. After time, he spent it all. He had nothing more, and he grew hungry, and there was, there was at that time a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious, Jewish religious elites. This is one of those times when I believe Jesus is saying that my life, my word, my love, my grace and mercy is for every single person under the sun. Everybody is included. Because in the minds of these Religious people that was a very narrow. God was, was pleased and God was for a very narrow group of people. He sent him out to feed the pigs. Pork and Jews don't mix very well. We know that. They had strict guidelines against any sort of uh, connection or uh, contamination. They would see it as when you would uh, be around uh, pigs, Right? The son was so famished at one point, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Well, Jesus didn't just say, well, he, he worked in the fields and took care of some pigs. He actually said he was eating the slop that was for the pigs. The Pharisees, their brain, like their minds are just blown at this point. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. He came to his senses and he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They don't lack anything. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back to my father's house. And when I go, I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees, one of your slaves. So the young son sent off for, set off for home. What's about to happen in this story is uncharacteristic in that ancient culture. Everything that the father does is not typically done in that culture. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar. 
And great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. And he swept him up in his arms. He hugged him dearly, kissed him all over, over and over, and expressed his tender love for this son. Then the father said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. But the father interrupted. He wouldn't let him, let him, let him finish his statement. He says, son, son, you're home now. You're home now. And turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I'll place it on his shoulders. Bring the, the ring, the seal of sonship. This son who came from far off, who had lived a terrible life, walks in. His dad doesn't even let him finish his repentant statement. And he says, bring me the ring, the seal of sonship. Let him transact business in my name again. In today's world, we, we might say in our, our relationships with our heavenly father, we might say he was saying to him, like, give him the Holy Spirit. Like, he's home. Give him. Give him what he needs. Let the fire fall. Let the Holy Spirit just inform his life. Give it to him. Bring out the best shoes. Slaves and employees weren't going to wear shoes. They were barefoot. He's saying, here's my son. Put some shoes on this boy. He's home. Let's prepare a great feast. Let's celebrate for this beloved son of mine was once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy except for, except for the older son. He was out working in a field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music, he heard the dancing and celebration. And so he called over one of his servants and asked, what's going on here? What's going on here? And the servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home and your father's throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son. You can put Pharisee, religious elite, looking down their nose Christians in this spot. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father comes out and pleads with him. He says, come and enjoy this feast with us. See, Again, culturally, the older son was a co-host of this celebration in that culture. And his refusal to come in the house, to be part of this celebration, was again another humiliating rejection of the father. The son said, Father, listen to me. Like how many years have I been working like a slave for you? In other words, he's very sarcastic. He's like, I've been working my rear end off. Like, I've been working and slaving for you like a dog. You've, I've done everything. I've been faithful to you. I've never once disobeyed you. I've been so good and right. I've been following the rules. And this idiot son of yours comes home who has been out wasting his life, comes home and you throw a party for him. Wow, isn't that something? You think I'm gonna co-host this thing with you? No, no, I'm not.
You know why I'm not? Because you've never thrown a party for me. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living. And here you go throwing a great feast to celebrate. For him. I love the father's response. The father says, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. What was lost was found. He was lost and now he is found. The younger son who was filled with self-hatred, he was filled with condemnation, experienced neither from his father. The older son, filled with moral outrage that his little brother who partied his inheritance away while he never did anything wrong, could come in and be reinstated. The older brother turned to judgment and bitterness. But the father judged neither one. He simply wanted to feast with both of them. Because all he had, all the father had, was already theirs. What we, you and I, need to understand is that we have an enemy that is after us. We have an enemy of our souls that would keep us believing the lies about our own identity as sons and daughters of the father. He wants nothing more than for us to keep living in a place of fear and judgment, and thus keeping us from experiencing love to the fullest. If you hear this word and feel conflicted because your perception of God has been more about fear than it has about love, it's been more about judgment and punishment rather than grace and mercy, then I want you to hear these words from John chapter five. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. So is the son going to judge you? He can, but this is what he says. John 5, 45, do you think I will accuse you before the father? The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Moses means the Old Testament law and the systems of the world that show our sinfulness but really are powerless to do anything about it. They just shine a light on something that cannot be resolved. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices we give. Last weekend we talked about that. It doesn't matter how many lambs are slain. There's only one lamb that was slain for the redemption of the world. That is Jesus. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. See, Jesus came to save, not to judge. You and I have to take responsibility. We have to take responsibility for whatever judgment we feel or experience. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. You and I need to take responsibility for whatever judgment we feel or experience, for any action, you know, this whole Newton's law thing, for any action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
Like we reap what we sow. We like to think that God's judgment is on us, but it's sometimes it's simply the natural reap what you sow human experience. You know, some of you are carpenters. You know you've handled a hammer. And if you keep hitting your finger, it's going to break and bleed and bruise and throb. See, we hit our fingers with hammers all the time. Whenever you do something that harms you, body, soul, and mind, like if you don't want a smashed finger, then stop hitting it with a hammer. If you eat too much, you'll suffer the consequences. If you get angry, you'll feel the misery. When you tear down your spouse, you only slash at your own heart. When you ingest wrong chemicals into your body, your mind and body will pay a price. So stop. Or don't. See, both sons inflicted pain on themselves. One by chasing the pleasures of the world apart from his father and one through judgment. Both suffered as a result. But the father judged neither. Everything he had was his to give to his sons. This morning, like everything the father has is yours. If we want to receive what the father has, then we must step out of a place of judgment and condemnation of ourselves and other people. Would you stand with me? Several summers ago, my family and I visited the home where I grew up, the place with the basement, with the alcove. The home place still resembles the place of my memories, but you know how it is. It's not the same anymore. It's different. Time and distance sort of creates an illusion of what was. What is true, though, that thoughts of home reveal a deep longing for the place we remember. The place in our mind that fits us. It, like, suits us perfectly. In this parable that Jesus told, the one that we know as the prodigal son, the parable of this younger brother where he goes off to a distant country but they're disappointed and disillusioned with the results of his meandering. He remembers the food in his father's home. He longs for home, as do we all. When we find ourselves living in that far country, but we dare not come home because we fear the repercussions, we desperately need to know the truth. And the truth is, he's already seen you coming. And before you can utter the words of repentance, Jesus is already reinstating you. He doesn't look on you with wrath. He doesn't look on you with judgment. He doesn't look on you with punishment. He only looks at you with an embrace, a kiss, a robe, a ring, a sandal for your foot, 
and a feast. You want to know where to find faith that is fearless? This is where you find that fearless faith. It's found in the unconditional love of our Heavenly Father. I know that fear is present in our lives. It's a thing we all contend with. This is part of our human experience. What I also know is that when we allow the embrace of Jesus to come and inhabit us, when his Holy Spirit informs our thinking, when we allow his healing to really penetrate a little further than just skin deep, that fear goes. Fear has to go. Fear has no place when we are surrounded by and inhabited by such a deep love of the Father. So what I want you to know this morning, guys, is that when those voices of condemnation and judgment come at you, identify them as to what they are. You don't have to keep believing those lies. You can believe the truth that Jesus does not look on you with judgment and condemnation. So square your shoulders back and stand up to that voice. And let it be true of us. Let it be true of you and I that we won't move and breathe and allow fear to come through in that movement, in that fear, and in that the breath that we take. Like We are like a breath of fresh air to the people around us. We will not capitulate to the fear. But if you do this morning, if you still feel like you are under that cloud of fear, if something has not been resolved in your life, then don't leave here without it. Our prayer team is going to be up front during our worship experience as we close out our time. Man, I would just love for you to step into freedom this morning. That's what this is all about. It's about being free of what keeps us bound, free of what keeps us in this alcove of darkness where we believe that the shadow is actually real. Let's get reality this morning. Let's experience freedom together. Father, I thank you for these people, for my friends. God, I pray for just the overwhelming presence of your spirit this morning to empower us, to give us courage that as we leave this house, that we would not allow fear to keep us in bondage anymore but that we would have a fearless faith that is foundation, uh, foundationally uh, empowered by the love of God. Help us to know the truth.
because the truth will certainly set us free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.